This episode of Everything Hurts is brought to you by Paperpile, the reference manager you'll actually want to use. Paperpile works seamlessly with Google Docs and Word for inserting citations and generating reference lists. Paperpile's iOS and Android apps also make it super easy to add and read papers on the go. Everything Hurts listeners get 20% off the Paperpile subscription with the coupon code HURTS. To learn more, visit paperpile.com. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin. James, hello. hello. I'm, I'm going to jump straight. <laughs> I'm going to jump straight into it. And oh, he's doing a straight jump. Straight jumpers. Go on, man. Straight jump. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a blog post that came up. It was actually um, published first in 2020, but uh, it got a lot of play within the past week or so. Uh, and this one is talking about reversals in psychology. And this is a website put together by Gavin Leach, who is a PhD candidate in interactive artificial intelligence. And in this website, Gavin has put together a list of reversals in psychology. And these are reported findings, which were later revealed to be wrong or revealed to have not as strong evidence as we first thought. And this is a very nice website. He links to the original papers, including the participant numbers, the number of citations, and then links to the replication papers, also with sample sizes and number of citations. And you can guess the differences in those things between the replications and the original studies. Um, And there's also a list of the original effect sizes and the replication effect sizes. James, um, you you posted about this uh, this this post. What do you think about all this? Well, I have to start with obviously. Thank you, thank you so much, Daniel, for, for choosing another topic that's Twitter centric. You you can see you ladies posted and gentlemen, about this, mate. This is you. you can see just how often he gets distracted by shiny objects, even if occasionally I have a hand in shining them a little. Um, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't go around reading something and having a having a reflective topic. No, the shiny object has come past, so we'll talk about that. Thanks, Dan. Uh, that being said, when I've quite finished being a pig over here, um, it's it's very interesting for a variety of reasons. Not all of them are because it's fun to uh, troll through the wreckage. I guess it's troll through the wreckage, but troll works in this context as well. <laughs> it's fun to troll through the wreckage of all the failures of the silly social scientists. Um, well, I mean, we've all had a bit of a go at that now. Um, I, I suppose I was interested in this in the first instance simply because of the scope. This is a big old thing. I, I remember doing this uh, on, on the twats uh, a couple of years back, just everything that I could think of, just trying to put it all into context. But this is much more comprehensive than anything I ever did. So we've got social psychology, positive psychology, cognitive psychology, developmental psychology, personality psychology, behavioral science, marketing, neuroscience, psychiatry, parapsychology, which just says all of it, evolutionary psychology, psychophysiology, hello boys, behavioral genetics, uh, and then some other shit slapped into the bottom. Now, that must have, it must have taken a while. Um, not a lot of people would, would have this sort of commitment to even try and organize something like this. And of course, there was, there was a lot of hobby horsing in response, you know. My thing's not as bad as all that. It's very easy to knock, isn't it? 
I mean, it wasn't for fucking years, so uh, <laughs> it wasn't very easy to knock at all. Um, anyone who ever tried to publish a failed replication between, I suppose, the years of uh, about 1960 and 2010, in that minor 50-year period, would probably want to have a word with you about this fucking winds are changing bullshit. Um Presumably a lot of people would say for the better. It certainly seems to have changed our level of baseline scepticism that we have as an academical community when we look at what is behavioral science telling us today. So a few of these are not uh they're not amazing summaries. I mean I mean for like Fair Cop though, I mean he's he's had what, 60, 80 summaries to do, and they're all supposed to be very brief. Um, so you could you could pick out a few of them, and, and people people have had a little pick here and there. That really wasn't supposed to be an experiment. That was a behavioral demonstration. The fault is the textbooks that continually cast it as an experiment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but you 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 do get a sense of the enormity of it. It's not really available through other documents. It's the first time. I mean, this whole thing would make a um, uh, would would make an impossible review paper because uh, you know most of these things are uh, worthy of article level discussions in and of themselves. If you give a shit about the topic in the first place, and I have to say, in two thirds of the cases here, I I really don't. Um, there are a lot of classics people will remember. Um, the, the the youth narcissism thing, I think, is a is a is a very interesting one. Um, well, it starts strong with priming, elderly priming, classic in the genre. Uh, well, your classic classic bag of piss, um, really. That I've. It's one of those one one of the, one of those papers from the oh shit the mid nineties or something. Um, you know, you you see something in the. Uh, you 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 see something in the the fucking within basic proximity to something else, and you make the association. And now it's uh in this case it's a um in this case it's a, it's an an old uh you, you, this is the one where they walk more slowly down the corridor. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Um, Do you remember how much? Yeah. Was in how that? how how Pashler did a uh, an accurate replication of this shit a, a decade ago? I guess. Um, and it, it, it doesn't. I mean, something, something like this, like these priming studies where the original effects are as strong as they are, immediately raise the question of how the original effects were constructed in the first place. Now we have some answers to that that, depending on who you ask, are rational explanations, if difficult to hear, or cynical and unpleasant. Um, you can might understand that I, I fall into the first category. But look, the original effect size of this is... It, it's it's about eighty percent of the effect size of our men taller than women. Yeah, point eight, round one, the effect sizes were. Uh, yeah, the, uh, men men taller than women is about one point four. Yeah, um, I think this was uh, what one 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 and a bit. It's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those sort of classicy uh, classicy fellas. That, that go in the go in the, uh, the, the 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 big bucket of things we should have been more skeptical at the time. So. So there's a, and this look, this there's a there's a bag, there's a bag of these, uh, the the sort of uh, general uh, the association of um, something bleeding into something else through uh, some sort of um, unsubstantiated mechanism. Have you look, seen the psychophysiology one before? 
yes. I, I I've never seen that before. And Why don't I'm you tell everyone what it is, Dan, because we're not just talking to ourselves here. So the psychophysiology finding was that um, that sympathetic nervous system activity politics, uh, predicts political ideology in a simple fashion. So mm-hmm. subjects' skin conductance reaction to threatening or disgusting visual prompts, and uh, there was also a noisy and questionable uh, measure that was used for this. So this one was, <laughs> is totally new to me. I had not heard of this one before. Mm, well, you missed out. It was the super. I mean, it's it's forever old. Um, it's one of the few psychophysiological articles to ever be in a CNS journal. Dan, I thought you would have heard of it. I imagine that you came across this at some point in time, and that you you simply haven't remembered it because it isn't important to yeah, you. Probably. Uh, I, I think I think it's reasonable to to expect that at this point. Yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's looking at. Um, it's looking at physiological threat responses. So uh, you either jam electricity through someone or show them a nasty image or play them a loud noise, and all of these involve uh, different autonomic and circulatory and neural factors, et cetera, et cetera. But they all go into different models of how threats are understood as experimental uh, models, I suppose. Um, and they took a handful of people and they run them on the political ideology something versus the physiological response something, and there's an interrelationship there. Um, and it's from fucking Wisconsin or something, so it's like 50 people from Wisconsin, uh, as, as per usual, de- describing the nature of humanity itself because God knows 50 people from – is it Wisconsin? Probably. That's fucking – we're saying that. They're from Wisconsin now. It doesn't matter where they were before. Everyone moved Correct if they're from the elsewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're all <laughs> – they're packing up their cars as we as speak. As we speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's – Look, the, the, one of the one of the reasons that I I was never fully comfortable with a lot of psychophysiological work is that we love to in that field, and I'll include myself out of habit. We love to reduce physiological capacities to strong operationalizations that are allowed to say other things. So. You take the variability of the heart over time. We know about its neural mechanisms. We know about its regulation. And then that becomes, it doesn't have a messy representation with, it becomes a measure of stress or autonomic regulation or whatever else. You jam jam it all up together real good like that. and then you take something else that's another task. You go, oh, here's a card sorting task. Here's a fucking look at a picture of an old task. Here's a, here's a walk down a corridor with a hot coffee cup task. And you take that operationalization of something and you smash it together with the other one. And then you get a little bit creative. Hmm. And then all of a sudden we have physiological, veridical, real measurements, which is the center of the appeal for social scientists who are actually measuring something that is a physical quantity. We have started in a very small way, but have started nonetheless doing biology. Now, the prob- that's not such a terrible idea when it comes to the generation of ideas. But if you want to do a biology, you must play by biological rules. 
So you do that as a first study. I don't have a problem really with a lot of dumb speculative work. I only have a problem with it when you do that in isolation and then you immediately proceed to do more vaguely or partially related dumb speculative work elsewhere. If you're really interested in the relationship between physiological category or response or capacity A and outcome B, do different ones. Take your cues from the perceptual weirdos. I want to see it's like seven versions of that thing, please, because you're trying to capture a whole concept with one particular version, which replete with assumptions. You're trying to go, you've got you've got one particular version of one particular idea, and it allows you basically to mash concepts together. And it scares people in the social sciences to have to go, oh shit, nerves. Noradrenaline, ganglia. Ooh. Yeah? Man, you want to know, but you're a scientist in the world. It's like, yeah, what's the fucking problem with all that? <laughs> that's, a, you just, that's, just <laughs> Tuesday. that's just Tuesday, motherfucker. That's, that's nothing. But it, it has this weird sort of intimidatory factor to people who aren't used to it at the same time. So that is why. And this is about this whole labs. I'm not going to name anyone, although I am thinking your names. Fuck you. Um, there, there are a whole bunch of labs all over the world mashing these things together day after day, hour after hour, model after model to make a thing, to put it in a place. And they're not interested in either as I said before, broadening these operationalization into something that's more capable of supporting their concept, and even that is questionable, but at least you can fucking try. But they're not, not interested in breaking these things into subcategories. They're not interested in breaking the, the, the response component stuff of something into other biological functions. And it's particularly frustrating to me because that's all I was ever interested in. All I was ever interested in was going deeper on what does the signal mean? What does this allow us to do? What's the environment? I always wanted to build a bedrock of being able to do stuff. And anyway, no one in the social sciences ever gave a fuck. Yeah? People just wanted access to leverage to apply to concepts. So it all drove me fucking crazy. And very long story short, Daniel, this is a prime example of exactly that. Do you, were, there, were there half a dozen follow-up studies on different threat models, different physiological capacities, different understandings of uh, how uh, different kinds of threat are observed? I mean, your basic threat responses, uh, d depending on where you get them from, I mean, it starts with, I guess you could include something like startle, and then you have recovery to something uh, that's unpleasant, and you have stacking those together as something over time, and then you have cognitive and social and whatever else as the concept of a threat. And then, of course, you have naturalistic models of actually fucking threatening people, you know? I mean, we all get very ethical when it comes to someone jumping out of the cupboard with a big knife. But honestly, you, 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 and this is, and this is why all the research that I like in this area in general is naturalistic research. And that's actually how I became interested in wearables 15 years ago. Because you have, you have to nail down. If you, if you have a laboratory model or something like this, you have to be very, very sure that all the pieces make sense. 
because you need to be able to build and extend upon that to be able to say anything sensible. So the one thing that I'll tell you something that, that I never got to do, um, Jesus, if someone says like writes to me and says they want to do this, I will fucking I will get my company to build you the hardware. <laughs> it's just about I always wanted to study a haunted house. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I think they're hilarious. Um, uh, the photos are fun. I don't particularly. I, I like. It's one of those things I like the concept of. It's like the like I like the concept of skydiving, but at the same, I'm okay-ish with heights, and uh, I don't really think I want to jump out of a plane. Also, I got a lot of gravity going on these days, so <laughs> I think I think the parachutes have a weight Straight limit. Down, and I'm fucked. <laughs> Straight down. Oh, I looked. I, I looked. I looked up at doing it. I thought maybe this is something I should confront. And they went, "Our parachutes have a weight limit, and it's something like two hundred pounds or something." Like, oh yeah, I passed that a long time ago in strongman. Um, yeah, that was like that. That would that would have been an embarrassing weight. You know, it's just uh, <laughs> it's just not a possibility. He said, distracting himself. Uh, but I mean, it's a it's it's a haunted house. Yeah. Uh, you have a self-selected population. That's something that you can fuck with. You can select your own people. Um, you know, Give get them. Tell them you're going to tell them you're going to pay the money. People who wouldn't normally go. Uh, they're going to they're going to have to get uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're going to have to get wired in whatever way that you want to do it. But then after that, you've got all of these you've got all of these marvelous implicit and explicit threats. The respiration alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, now you've now you've got I mean because I mean, what are, what are they built out of? I mean, it's the, exactly the same tropes that are in horror movies. Exactly the same sequence of events that scares you. Uh, exactly the same mechanics are present live in the haunted house. So what do you got? Obviously, you've got jump scares, right? So you're walking down. Suddenly, something comes open. So what do we got? Uh, sound, uh, light, and vision in general. Um, you can. It can also be tactile. Um, some of them are pretty clever about um, having, uh, you know, like a, something, something, something with a bad smell, something with put- putrescine and a little fan, and the doors open and suddenly blast you full of something that smells like shit. Uh, pretty clever. It's pretty. It's pretty clever. Yeah. Okay. Then now, now this is so because <laughs> in 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 the polarized United States in this political environment, you really think we couldn't get uh, fifty people. It's like the, the the people on one side who never bought any lawn signs, but they give a lot of money to the guy down the road who does the Democrats, and then a, a bunch of the the the, the fucking the, the truck loonies, you know, the ones where all the the, the the shit comes out of it, or whatever they're called, the like the ironic troll the environment motherfuckers. You think you can get twenty five of these people on each sure. side and put them in a haunted house and wire them up? There's your true response right there. It, it, it's, I mean, this is shit. You could, you could run the whole thing in a couple of weeks. You just, you just need, but you, you need the, the, the knowledge of what you're looking for. And nothing ever is, and it's fun, you know? It's an actual real thing. We'd actually, at the very least, would learn more about haunted houses. Yeah. Which is infinitely better than learning more about how some constrained shit in a weird environment mm. looking at a computer screen works. So anyway, look, far be it from me to get get off on a whole big goddamn rant. Um, this is a more general reflection that I had looking at this list, which is basically if you hadn't abandoned this and you'd pursued it in a different kind of way, and for some of them that would probably mean managing to talk yourself out of it, 
if if you'd done this differently, you wouldn't be on this list. Hmm. If you'd managed to, I, this is and this this goes back to a weird uh, conception I developed a couple of years ago when it comes to research concepts. I think if you kill your own babies, you could still be famous. Okay. I think if you grow something up, you say, oh, I've had a great idea and I've done a big fantasy study and it's really fucking amazing and I'm going to publish it in the fantasy journal and you get to give a talk and someone comes around to your office and gets you a little metal pin, you know? And you, if, you, if, you, if, you run that, if you run that motherfucker into the ground, it's not like you won't learn anything. But I think, I think there's a fear, there's kind of a, especially in the social sciences, there's this weird implicit fear that if you work on it until your, your cleverness will go away if it's contradicted, everyone will say, no, I don't think they're clever anymore. You know? It's like you want to play that in easy mode. None of my ideas are ever wrong. I mean, way to be an enemy of progress, motherfucker. Seriously, anyone, anyone in that headspace, I would love for you. I would love for my life for you to go and work in a hardware company. Where if it doesn't work, it's 100% obvious and it's always your fault until it does. And there are immediate mechanisms of accountability and you are responsible for other people's money when you are working on these problems. I would, I would like to see, you know, Oh, that, that study I did in 1996 with 97 failed replications. No, it's still fine. Uh, all of those replications simply prove that it didn't work according to some other parameters that I didn't set myself. And when they replicated it, they were very rude to me. So fuck them. I really love you. For, I'd love if you could go and get a job at a hardware company. I would love to see how your attitude translates into reality just judging you right to your face. Thank you to Paperpile for supporting this episode of Everything Hurts. Paperpile is a reference and PDF manager that you'll actually enjoy using. Look, there are a few options when it comes to saving reference information and PDFs, but none are as easy as Paperpile. Not only can you use the Paperpile Chrome extension to save reference information with one click, with the Paperpile browser integration, this adds a small button next to all the papers in the results of your Google Scholar and PubMed searches. And what's even better, if you already have the paper in your library, there's a little green tick on the button so you don't have to import duplicates. When you import your paper, it'll extract the PDF if it's open access or if you have institutional access. And if you don't, it will look for preprints or author accepted versions of papers. Importing your library from other reference management systems is super easy if you want to make the switch. Or if you have a folder of PDFs, you can just import that and Paperpile will grab the metadata and flag any duplicates. Once your PDFs are in your library, you can highlight or underline sections or add notes to sections of papers and it will sync across multiple devices. And speaking of multiple devices, Paperpile also has iOS and Android apps that just work. It's also super easy to save articles and PDFs that you find while you're on your smartphone or tablet. So, for my typical workflow, I might discover an interesting paper on Twitter, use the iOS share sheet to share the paper pile, which saves the reference info and PDF, and then I can read it later on my laptop. And any highlights I make on my laptop are automatically synced back to my smartphone. I'm a huge fan. If Paperpile sounds like a tool you want to include in your research, Everything Hurts listeners get 20% off a Paperpile subscription using the coupon code HURTS. That's H-E-R-T-Z. Just go to paperpile.com. That's paperpile.com. Thanks again to Paperpile for supporting Everything Hurts.
one thing related to this that I've been thinking about or reading about a lot recently is this idea of auxiliary hypotheses or auxiliary assumptions. For yeah, so many of these, on. for so many of these papers or for so many of these concepts that are in this list, quite often there is a defense when these things don't replicate. The original authors are like, "Ah, oh, you haven't considered the, the 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 hidden. There are hidden moderators, or there are certain moderators which actually affected these results here." And this isn't a new concept, the fact that these hidden moderators or uh, auxiliary assumptions actually affect how we test our hypotheses. I think during the, I think it was in the 70s, um, Lakatos called this thing like a protective belt. So essentially, if you have these auxiliary hypotheses and they fail or you fail to support them, they form a protective belt around your core hypothesis. So your thing doesn't work. And rather than saying my hypothesis is shit, you go, ah, oh, it was just, it was my assumption. So maybe my mm. construct didn't, didn't work properly um, or, or, or that the temperature wasn't correct or we got a weird population of students. And yeah, right. When you do that, if as long as you're not supporting your auxiliary hypotheses or not supporting your auxiliary assumptions, you can always blame them rather than blaming the theory. So there's been a lot of talk recently. Um, uh, there, there was a great article by Ann Scheel, uh, f- former guest of the show that she co-authored um, with, um, with Larkins and, and another former guest of the show and a few a few others in that lab, which was basically saying that um, you shouldn't, a lot of people just aren't ready for hypothesis testing, that rather than actually going and rather than testing hypotheses, you should actually be firming up your assumptions before you actually get to your hypotheses. Because if you're not firming up your assumptions, then you can't do proper um, hypothesis testing. Um and uh, mm. I actually remember I was um uh, I was in the I was doing a lab visit when she when she presented this to the lab and I'm like this is this is amazing this is this is like it's it's something that you think that you sort of think oh it makes sense but we haven't actually considered very closely this idea of our the, the importance of these auxiliary assumptions in the work that you are doing um, because mm. well I, I think I think a lot of people have considered that like the honest researchers have considered that without formalizing it into that framework exactly which I like very much yeah. But this um, this framework is interesting because then you have sort of your auxiliary assumptions around theory because no theory stands alone. There's always your theory and then auxiliary theories that support that. In biology, a lot of those auxiliary theories are evolution and we accept that. Um, then you've got um, sort of uh, experimental um, auxiliary assumptions. So for us, it might be, I mean, a lot of people run under the assumption that the, um, the, the, the ratio of low frequency to high frequency heart rate variability represents sympathovagal balance. It doesn't matter. Don't, don't. Yeah, I'm not going to go to that. It doesn't matter how much how much open science practices you're doing as part of your study. It doesn't matter if you pre-register that study. You are wrong because that auxiliary hypothesis does not stand up. Um, and so, so yeah, there, there, there are these yeah, different- yeah. Well, okay. Well, look, I get into this without losing my temper for a couple of seconds. So, presumably, in a situation like that, so Dan is Dan is talking about the relationship between two frequencies that are present in the regulation of the heartbeat over time. Um, one of them is largely mediated by uh, primarily the regulation of parasympathetic outflow with some other factors mixed in on top of it depending on the speed and the circumstances. And the other one is related to the uh, vasomotor uh, baroreflex tone, which is not in any way a simple thing where you can just go, it is a nervous system talking to a heart cyst. It does not work like that. It involves both branches of the nervous system coordinating in different ways through different mechanisms uh, to be able to produce a reasonably complicated response. Uh, and when it comes to uh, 
circulatory physiology as it's used in medicine. Uh, it's used for completely different things in a more straightforward diagnostic kind of basis, which have nothing to do, which are Those very are well supported because we've we've under we've understood what the fuck they are forever. So the assumptions here is that uh, we know what autonomic regulation is going into those frequencies. And then you've turned that into this is a uh, this therefore represents measure of autonomic regulation. But if you go back two steps, the auxiliary assumption is low frequency power is related to a certain kind of autonomic outflow in some context. And it's not wrong as much as it's overtly simplistic to the point that it's useless. So, yeah, I presume that's what we're talking about. So this is, uh, yeah, I'm having some confusion at the beginning there between like, uh, is this like a bedrock assumption? Is it something that we're following like upwards or is it something that we're following sideways? It's more it's more of a sideways thing. So it works both ways. So you need it in mm, order okay. for your thing to be valid, but you also need it in order to falsify your your hypothesis. So I'm thinking more of a sort of a, a, a broader idea in this kind of protective belt thing that if the auxiliary hypothesis is shit, then we can never falsify the main thing because you can always blame the auxiliary. It's always like, oh, yeah, it was um, it was a sampling problem or, yeah, maybe our measure isn't, isn't, isn't so accurate. Um, mm. And a lot of this is is said explicitly and a lot of this is said implicitly. So there, this kind of led to these calls like from, from Anne's recent paper, which I'll post a link to, that, um, that in many areas of psychology, perhaps we're not ready to test hypotheses. We've got hypothesis testing fetish. Everyone thinks that this is the best way to do things, but the reason that these things um, the, a lot of these studies aren't replicating isn't because they're not being pre-registered. Um, a lot of them, it, that, that is the case. But for a lot of these studies, it's because these assumptions just haven't been established yet. And in order to actually get to that stage where you want to do hypothesis testing, first you have to establish these um, uh, th- these auxiliary assumptions. Like w- one thing within my field is like, does intranasal oxytocin even get to the body brain? Like that, that is a debate in itself. The, the, the second debate... <laughs> Let, let's let's talk about dosage. That feels like a pretty fucking important pre- debate. That's that's pretty important. But he, here's one that's even more important: <laughs> dosage. Yeah, we don't even know what the best dosage is. So essentially, if something fails, you can just go, "Oh, maybe it was the dosage." And then until you actually do a proper dose response study, people forever they're just going to be ruling out this thing, going, "Well, maybe it was higher, maybe it was lower." I don't know. So I think that's a really good example of the importance of without good. Um, auxiliary assumptions, you can never falsify a hypothesis because you'll always blame mm-hmm. something else. And in this case, it's like, oh, it's dosage. Oh, it's too high. It's too low. Well, l- l- let's just try again next time. And yeah. the theory never dies. Here's an interesting point. You can you can do that. Let's say we have some spurious result that we've vomited into the scientific commons at large. I feel like this is a speculation. I don't know if this is unfair. I feel like your failed attempts to support your positive knowledge generating fucking whatever hypothesis, those attempts that don't work due to your auxiliary assumptions are not subject to the same blind prejudice that is applied to negative results. I feel like if you if you if you if you fail to directly support your positive idea, it's somewhere in between when it comes to its gross publishability in a system that values novelty and flashy horseshit uh, over you know getting things right, which is a 
minor point we probably collectively <laughs> still need to consider more. Uh, I don't have any evidence to support that. It's more, you know, it's the presentation of that. Here's an interesting wrinkle in the attempts to establish this particular piece of positive theory. It's like, it, it, it's almost as if, if you have the congenital boldness and the ability to go around having an idea, it's like, well, they've had an idea. Let's, let's let them keep having it. And of course, there are going to be hiccups, but they'll get there in the end. You know, like the ant that tried to move the mountain, bless them. It's not a negative result. Negative results of a naysayers and dickheads like us. <laughs> One thing that was mentioned in the piece was this idea of re-reversals. So, he, he, Gavin was basically saying, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm open to the idea um, that perhaps some of these things are wrong. Um, something that I've spoken about recently is that if you're doing a replication and you find a negative result, um, you also need an appropriate sample size for that. You can't have a shit sample size, get a non-significant result, and then conclude there is an absence of an effect. It does not work that way. You no, need to of have- course, of course, it, of course it fucking doesn't. Yeah. That's no, why people, I mean, people think the, that. Vast, the vast majority, the vast majority of- Papers within the reevaluation of this evidence are almost always, a lot of the time, especially when it comes to mass replications, they're generally trying to choose the most central and supportable claims from the whole thing. What's the thing that absolutely must be true because a certain form of essentialization is required? And then they're powered out the fucking ass. And this is prim- this is partly because of just the raw statistical facts involved, that observations where you expect a very small effect need to be appropriately powered. If you want a reliable observation of a small effect, you need a lot of measurements. You don't even need fucking statistics to invoke that. But also there is the social factor, Dan, of the fact that we do not like people turning over our narratives, and we would like them to be very sure, because we have some dumb collective intuition that this is somehow counterproductive and naughty. And that's that's also part of it. So someone someone does this, I mean, the 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 whatever, the fucking experiment about the skin conductance, uh, the skin conductance and the threat model for the polarized political whatever. And from memory, the problem was even like constructing the nature of the polarity in the political spectrum was was a problem. Some people were like crushingly moderate, but they were one point here, and I think they pushed them over was, the was line. Was it a median split? Was it? I uh, it. It it might have been it might have been oh, I'd have no, to, I'd have to, I'd have to go no. and look it up. It was it was it was some kind it was some kind of silliness like that. But if someone does that with fifty, and we're going to kill their lovely idea, like the big negative Nellies that we are, we're going to kill their lovely idea. We really need to turn up with eight hundred motherfuckers, because yeah, you need to be you need to be certain. You need to make a committed, uh, you know, a trenchant effort. Do you know that? Um- do you know that uh, Simpsons meme where Homer's going across the? Um, I think he quit his job. He's going across this bridge, and he he literally burns the bridge behind him. You may have seen that meme. No. Yeah. Anyway, there's no. a meme. He goes across, no. and this is the, the burning bridges meme. I think there's a few people that when they kind of make the decision, you know what, I'm going to leave this research area. What they do is they turn around and go, well, I have a file drawer full of negative studies. I'm just going to put them out there. I think this is laudable. I think this is great, but I've seen a few situations where all these studies were really, really underpowered. So people are going, oh, look, look th- these effects don't work. But 
because these people weren't searching for these effects and weren't replicating these original effects, they were basically going, look, we had we have these studies, but they're very, very underpowered. So there's, I, I do get for a lot, of the, a lot of the studies mentioned on this page, yeah, the replications have been massive, but this isn't always the case. But I do want to go back to this idea of a re-reversal. Do you know any situations where this has happened, where someone's gone, hey, here's a thing. People go, no, you're wrong. But then all of a sudden they flip back going, oh, the uh, the, the original person, she was right. Do you, do, can you think of any examples? I've I, I thought of one, um, but I was wanted to see if you had thought of it. This, this one's more in medicine. It's not even in psychology. Well... I mean, this shouldn't even. I don't. I don't even like the the reversal is a specific thing, right? I mean, this is this is like a proposed name for uh, something that applies in the context of the social sciences. Originally, originally uh, put together in medicine, the whole well, idea. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's about it's about a change in the standard of care after an RCT, right? It's not a. It's it's a new-ish concept. Ten years old. I mean, you have to give it a name. I mean, the evidence fucking changed. I don't know why it needs to wear a little hat and call itself something else. But just, you know, what is that? Dan? A failed failed replication. <laughs> <laughs> but look, this is 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 the thing. Here's the thing. Whatever you're about to describe is fucking fine. In fact, it's interesting because like how the individual pieces fit together to make a series of studies over time is going to be an interesting narrative. Go, now tell it. You're probably familiar with this, but it is the, stum- the, 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 the stomach ulcer guy, Aussie bloke, in the early 80s from, I think it was a, it was a stomach, it was a, a gastroenterologist. And when he was basically doing doing surgery, he noticed that um, the, a lot of the stomachs were very inflamed. And so he said, I think stomach ulcers are caused by a bacteria and the bacteria is causing inflammation. A lot of Heliobacter people, pylori. Yeah, that's the one. A lot of people mm-hmm. agreed with him going, yeah, I think you're right. Um, but then there was pushback and a lot of people were going, no, it is due to, because this can be treated um, by medications that reduce acid, then it's mm-hmm. an acid problem. It's caused by stress or you're eating too much spicy food. And that was then all, 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 all <laughs> of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden this, this bloke was on the outer. And then, and then he does something amazing. He experiments on himself by getting the bacteria, building it, making a culture and drinking it, making himself violently ill in the process and proving the at least causally proving that this bacteria causes stomach ulcers and then a few more people um replicated this and then um, about 10 years later everyone was like hey this guy was actually right eventually was, this guy was right originally and he went on to win the Nobel prize 2005 bloke from, bloke from perth of all places <laughs> is he from perth no, no i think he did his original work in perth but i think he's i think he lives in Townsville now. Anyway, so oh, I've I always like that example. I remember of, it being Monash. My brain's gone completely to shit. Th- there's a good example of um, something you couldn't get past an ethics board. Um, we're gonna we're gonna make people really sick by making them drink drink bacteria. Old mate just did it himself. <laughs> I think it was yep. ignoble as well. I think. I sincerely hope so. I hope after he did that and he was in a, tr- a tremendous amount of GI pain that he managed to endoscope himself as well just for the metal <laughs> combo. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, yeah, you had, you had to awesome. demonstrate that he had stomach ulcers. My, stomach, my stomach's boiling like, and I want to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. It's the- Reward me. 
I, I, I love, Serious I love that scientific story. discourse here, ladies and gentlemen. I thought everyone knew that story, but in thinking about that, maybe everyone in Australia who's in biomedical yeah. research at some point in time knows that story. Um, and you know, I mean, I it it just it just seems like there's sort of competing bodies of evidence until we get to a thing, Deb. Presumably, like in the next ten to twenty years, when we have a better idea of how fucking Alzheimer's works, maybe we're going to be telling a similar story about neurofibrillary tangles. You know, because the whole antacid thing, well, yeah, it works, but you're you're treating you're treating the symptom and not this. Like if you have a a, a broken leg that isn't set, if you gobble Percocets all day, you're going to feel a whole lot better. It's not going to help your fucking leg, right? So yeah, I guess I I suppose I'll I'll I'll, I'll give it to you. You know, treat the treat the symptom, not the problem, etc. Yeah, yeah. etc. What are the implications for how we actually teach first year psych? I remember being taught teach them this. Yeah, I know, but but I remember being taught these studies in first year psych, and it was amazing. Rather than going, oh, here's um, here's Hubert and Weasel's um, uh, experiments, which won them the Nobel Prize. Here's Nico Timbergen's work on social behavior, which won him the Nobel Prize. Instead mm. of talking about this stuff, which is solid and replicates, um, it, it's it's almost as if it was a recruitment drive within first year to kind of go to go, hey. This this science is 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 really really interesting, and really really important. I, I saw an editorial from um, uh, Roy Baumeister, ego, Mr. Ego Depletion, and oh, when I was reading, it's published. Oh, I think it was about ten years ago. When I was reading it, it was one of those papers that I'm like, is is this? I couldn't quite figure out whether he was being serious or not because he was basically saying that um, if we try and do replication work, this is going to make psychology boring. And no one's going to be interested in it, and the field's going to die. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa! I have to, I have to. Post- no, 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 Dad. It's, it's. Look, this is. I mean, we probably, we probably disagree on the the necessity and the uh, and what that means about the field itself. Far out, but man. It's, it's not, it's not as if that isn't true. It's just that posing it as a major argument to stop trying to figure out how the world works is basically like, you know, if we can't maintain our convenient fictions, people will find this less interesting. You know, it's very. It's, it's, it's as if it's as if you took a gang of physicists and let them loose on the Harry Potter universe to correct all the fucking bullshit <laughs> that comes out of the ones. You're going, no, no, that's that's not possible. No, there's only two phenomena that could possibly do that. Um, you know, <laughs> it's walking around with a big electromagnet behind him on a little fucking cart. Everything everything has to levitate via maglev. Yeah, yeah. It's like a certain amount of the magic is lost. But that's the thing about magic; it doesn't survive contact with reality. Like no shit. But it is it is a it is a very important point when it comes to the human desire for narratives and the idea of fun and interesting evolutionary vestigia that hide behind our eyes and change our behavior. Unseen watches that are little, you know. Tiny, tiny, tiny little neural circuits or, or distributed programs within the brain making you do silly shit when you see an old fellow from across the street. It's that the idea that we contain mystery. It's, it's, I mean, this is, why, why wouldn't you want that? But I mean, seriously, you, you, you can, you can put an app book on Amazon for nothing. If you want to write fiction, fuck off, buy a Kindle, you know, figure out how to paginate your fiction and release it on that. 
charge two bucks and see how you do with all the other fucking dreck that's getting self-published these days. Did you see on the website there was also a list of books which tend to mention these failed studies? Po- popular psychology books. They're down the bottom. No, I missed that detail. What are you talking about? So down down the bottom, there is uh-huh. a list. I'm not sure what the title is, but there is... Um, uh, I saw it anyway. Um, speaking of Amazon and Google Books, what I really love is that these books give you a preview. Often you can read a chapter or two. So I love doing this because sometimes you, you see a book and you're like, that's interesting. This could make for interesting reading. You get the chapter and you're, you're on page three, Hungry Judges. Oh fuck yeah! That happened to the old uh, old Pinker's new book. I think I think within the first chapter, we have mm, yeah. we have the story of the hungry judges. If you're not aware, it's this idea um, which has been debunked in a very nice a very nice blog post from Daniel Larkins, which I'll link to. Um, and the original idea was that your sentencing is related to the time of day. And I believe the, the, you're going to get the worst sentence before lunch because the judges are hungry and they're cranky. Um, but this was, um, there was a number of problems with the original study. And uh, uh, yeah, so th- this is often used in, in, in pop psych books for, for, for how, how, how context can change, how we make decisions. Yeah, uh, also, I mean, you, you, it gives you an idea how seriously everyone tell it. All I, all I could think of is what a fucking shit-hot cross-promotional opportunity for Snickers. Yeah. <laughs> Always have a Snickers in your rope. Hangry. Maintain judicial impartiality through caramel and peanuts, motherfucker. What? <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, they get that for five years and then kind bar come in. What about some healthy fats? <laughs> you shouldn't be eating that shit at your age. <laughs> but seriously, look, look, I just I just hacked the whole fucking problem with a with a with a box of chocolate bars. Yeah? I mean, Jesus Christ! A cup of cup of cup of sweet tea, or extra extra biscuit with your fucking morning coffee. Like, at 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 what at what point was this ever treated like it was real? This is. I mean, people have made this point many many times before, but it continually bears repeating. Why do we not act as a species as if these things are true? And the reason is, at some core, fundamental, very important level, we don't really believe them. We don't act as, forgive me for getting my Yarconi on here, but I mean, we, we don't often behave as if the outcomes of these things that tell us about human nature and the world and the interaction between the two, we do not act as if these things are important, worthy of being included within public policy, things that we need to respond to or ameliorate or overcome. And if we had in this case, I mean, all it would have really resulted in is slightly fatter judges, most likely. I mean, this, that, that, that one always struck me. I remember this is because that, that's, that's fucking years old. I don't know how old it is, 15, 20 years or something, like a while, right? It always struck me as odd because judges do not make up sentences. They have very strong records over time for how they see stuff because a lot of the time they're self-consistent, even if they're not particularly consistent between individual parties. But at the same time, you are fitting what needs to be given as a sentence to minimum sentencing guidelines and 
the entirety of everything else that's ever come before. If you steal a car, the judge doesn't go, I don't like your tie. Daffy Duck is inappropriate for court. Ten years. Also, I need a Snickers. It's more, okay, well, you know, you have two priors. And you took the car in the middle of the night, so there's no aggravated external circumstances. And the people got their car back, so you're not guilty of, like, destruction of property. So I'm leaning between, like, six months in county and 500 hours community service. And the person says, go fuck yourself. And I go, okay, six months in county it is. Now, does that sound like something that would... I mean, judges also, they don't lose their fucking temper and have a cranky. Yeah? This is, this presumably is from like a local court where you're going one thing after the other and banging these motherfuckers out three minutes at a time. Because otherwise, it's just not, I mean, you can, like some complicated like, tax cases, you could preside over that forever in a day. So this is from, yeah, absolutely surprising amount of variables. And that's why it seemed like it, it would never really thrive. Often, you hear about these things at a point, and no one has the energy or the outlet, really, to say, I want to record all my individual skepticisms about this. And I've had people tell me before, no, you're obviously doing, you're reconstructing your memory. I didn't think you were skeptical about that at the time. Motherfucker, I'm skeptical about everything at the time. Don't tell me what I did or didn't think. You know? And all of these things, these things, they all lay little eggs. And a weird thing about my life is a lot of those eggs that were sort of laid uh, early on in grad school and before that, like going back uh, right through the, the aughts, a lot of those eggs hatched into big scaly lizards, big angry scaly lizards with tungsten teeth. And... In, in a weird way, it gave me a lot of confidence because you're, there's like circumstances, there are like people who are smarter and more hardworking than you who actually do the work of making it, uh, making the observations credible. On that note, we are going to wrap up for this episode. Thanks to Paper This Pile. isn't very old, so we finally did an old school Hertz episode. It they used to be like this. This is the first old school episode in ages. This is good. Which presumably means that uh, no one else who isn't listening to us is going to give a shit. <laughs> Let's find out. Let's find out. Let's find out. We are going to wrap up for this episode. Uh, thanks to Paperpile for supporting the show. And we'll be back again next week. We've got two guests lined up as well for our next we do episodes. We do indeed. Until then. Yep. Yeah.